The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Good morning, Story City Church. My name is Raha. Uh, please stand for God's word. The scripture reading for today's will be Genesis 37 verses 23 to 28. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's robe, the long steel robe that he hold on. They the wood took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, without water. They sat down to eat a meal, and when they looked up, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites, coming from Glitz. Their camels were carrying aromatic gums, balsam, and resin, going down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers agreed. When Midianite trades pass by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took Joseph to Egypt. I'm reading it in Farsi. پس چون یوسف نزد برادران رسید، پیراهن فاخر را که در برداشت از تن او به در آوردند. و او را گرفته در گودال افکندند گودال خالی و بیاب بود آنگاه به غذا خوردن نشستند و چون سر برفراشتن کاروانی از اسماعیلیان را دیدند که از جلعاد می آمد آنها بچطورهای خود بار سمق خوشبو، بلسان و مرداشتند که به مصر می بردند یهودا به برادران گفت از کشتن برادرانمان و کتمان خون او چه سود؟ بیایید تا او را به اسماعیلیان بفروشیم و دستمان را بر او دراز نکنیم زیرا او برادر ما و گوشت تن ماست برادرانش پذیرفتند پس چون بازرگانان مدیانی میگذشتند برادران یوسف او را کشیده از گودال برآوردند و به 20 پاره نقره به اسماعیلیان فروختند ایشان نیز او را به مصر بردند This is the words of the Lord we are glad you guys are here. Welcome to Story City Church. Your story is welcome here. My name is Jared. I have the honor of being one of your pastors here. It is a privilege to see your mostly smiling faces every Sunday morning. There's a couple of you who aren't smiling yet, but that's all right. Either you're mad at me or we'll figure it out later. It's all, it's all good. But um, welcome. We are, as a family, we're here to, to learn how to love Jesus and people. That just, it doesn't come naturally. It's actually really hard. Uh, sometimes it's easier to love Jesus than people. You think you're doing great and then somebody does something and you're like, okay, I don't love people anymore. Uh, so we get that. And uh, an apprentice, we use that term. An apprentice is somebody who, who watches and learns at the feet of a master. And that's what we're doing with Jesus. We together as a family are apprenticing Jesus. We're learning how to be more like him. We're doing this hands-on while we're working with him. And so uh, to have healthy relationships with Jesus and others is what we are all about. Now, one of the things that's really helpful is to know that Sunday services are actually not about us. 
In case you didn't know that, we're not here for ourselves. We're here because we're here to honor and glorify God. God is the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story, not us. And so we get to come together to worship, to sing, to praise, to pray, to celebrate, to challenge each other, to encourage each other, to just be around other people who are on the same journey with us, who are trying to figure it out. And so we're glad that you are here. But let's remember that the whole point of today is to honor and glorify God. Good? All right, some of you heard there was a question this morning, some of you didn't, but here's the question. If you were in trouble and couldn't couldn't go to your family for help, who would you go to? What do you guys got? Your roommates. Okay, good. I was thinking for a minute no one had any help. We're in trouble. All right, your roommates. That's good. That's good. That could be good. What else? What do you got? Community group. That's a very church answer. I like it. It's all right. What else? Me. Me. There's only one of me, so yes, I'll do what I can. <laughs> yeah, we can pray. Your best friends. Yes, that's a good one. Accountability people, yep. I think that's where you're going, right? That's good. Anybody else? Who would you go to if you didn't have anybody else, if you didn't have family to go to? Some of you are like, I have family and I still wouldn't go to them. <laughs> good, those are great, great things. We're going to talk today. Uh, about a, a guy named Joseph who uh, could not go to his family. He had some family drama going on there. Um, but for those of you who don't know who you would turn to, I would encourage you to build relationships here. Your church family is a family. But look, deep, good relationships don't come during easy times. Deep, good relationships come by suffering, by going through hard times together, by working through arguments together, by, by really getting to who you are for real and getting to the bottom of that, that's where real deep relationships come from. They don't come from the easy stuff. So fair enough. You may uh, find relationships are not easy to build, but they are worth it uh, when you build them well. All right. Now, you may have heard of this guy, Joseph, because of his technical, Technicolor dream coat. Uh, but as we found consistently over this series, the story is not actually about the story. And so we're going to find out today that the story isn't about Joseph, but about God's plan to rescue and redeem and save both Israel and the world. We're going to see how God's plan that he implements here points us to Jesus. We're going to see how to, stuff, to uh, steward suffering We saw a little bit of that in the video. And finally, we're going to see that our identity isn't in what we do, but in what Jesus has done for us and how that really helps us understand this story today. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to be teaching from a small part of the story of Joseph, but the examples or the points, observations I'm making are come from his whole story. So I want to encourage you. Okay, I couldn't read the entire story here today. Uh, But go and check out the end of Genesis because Joseph's story essentially shuts down the book of Genesis and read the ending, uh, read the story for yourself so it will help out. Because we are talking just one part of his story, let me give you a little background of how we got right here to where we are. Okay. Joseph has a dad and an uncle named uh, Jacob and uh, Esau. Jacob and Esau were Abraham's grandsons. Abraham is the one that God called out, gave this covenant blessing to. He said, I'm going to give you the promised land. I'm going to give you more offspring than you can count. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth by sending the Messiah through your family line. And you're going to get to keep be the keepers of my word. And so God singles this family out. Abraham believes in that covenant promise. And so um, God begins to work through this family we now know as the nation of Israel. Okay, so you have Jacob and Esau. And they and their parents... Uh, actually end up fighting 
for who is going to get this covenant blessing. It's a promise that God said will be delivered down through the family line. And so uh, they're arguing, well, who's it going to be? Is it going to be firstborn? Is it going to be secondborn? Who gets this covenant blessing? And so Jacob and his mom actually trick Esau and dad. And Jacob ends up fleeing for his life because his brother is going to kill him. Although Jacob is a pretty poor choice, uh, for uh, being lying for the, the heir of the Savior of the world. God keeps his promise and keeps the same covenant promise with Jacob. Now, this is a total novella. Here we go. Jacob falls in love with his cousin Rachel. I was joking that I needed like an ooh and an ah, like laugh track up here. But you guys will get, yeah, there you go. You'll get this. Okay, so he falls in love with his, his uh, cousin Rachel. But his uncle, yeah, thank you, tricks him into accidentally marrying Rachel's sister, Leah. So he accidentally marries the, the sister of the one that he wants to marry. Leah was the unloved one that God makes uh, loved and brings beauty to. Now, Leah, the unloved one, is able to have children, but Rachel, the loved one, is not able to have children. So this transforms this novella from a half-an-hour show to a full-blown movie, all right? Don't worry, we're going to come back to this story in a couple weeks, so consider this like a teaser for the uh, trailer for the sermon. Now, Rachel gets super jealous of Leah's kids, and so she gives Jacob her servant to be her sister wife. That never ends well. Leah then matches it and does the same, and so all kinds of kids are being born until Rachel's prayers are finally answered, and she gives birth. At that point now, it's the 11th son of Jacob, and this is Joseph. Okay? Rachel gets pregnant again uh, with a second but dies, and she gives birth to Jacob's 12th son, Benjamin. And so Rachel has two children of her own, and that is Joseph and Benjamin. The rest are from the concubines or from the servant wives and, uh, and from um, Leah. Okay, now here's the deal. Jacob's name is later changed to Israel. So if you hear us go back and forth between Israel and Jacob, it's because that's his name. He actually has both names. And the 12 sons of Jacob, or the 12 sons of Israel, become the 12 tribes of Israel. That's how we get those. And again, I said it's a full-blown novella. All right, let's just read the story for a little bit. We're going to focus on Genesis chapter 37. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Genesis. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. And again, you're almost to the very end of Genesis in chapter 37. Here is what it says. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, those are two, the concubines, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now, Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age. Again, that was his favorite wife, the wife that he wanted, but he was tricked into marrying the other one first. And so he made a long-sleeved robe for him. When his brothers saw their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. Then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said, listen to this dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field. Suddenly my sheaf stood up, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Let me just say uh, for you brothers and sisters, probably not the wisest thing to tell your older brothers and sisters about this dream. And they respond in verse 8, are you really going to reign over us? His brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? So they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. 
Then he had another dream. This guy's really smart, okay? Check this out. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, moon, and 11 stars are bowing down to me. He told his father and his brothers, and his father was very happy. No. His father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this you've had, he said. Am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow down on the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. His brothers had gone to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, your brothers, you know, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready, I'm sending them, you to them. I'm ready, Joseph replied. Then Israel said to him, go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the Hebron Valley and he went to Shechem. A man found him there wandering in the field and asked him, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph said. Can you tell me where they are pasturing their flocks? They moved on from here. The man said, I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph set out after his brothers and found him at Dothan. They saw him in the distance, and before he had reached him, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, oh, look, here comes that dream expert. So now, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben, that's the firstborn, heard this, he tried to save them from him. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said, don't shed blood. Throw him into the pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, intending to rescue him from them and return him to his father. That's key because that's going to come into something later. We're going to hear of what Reuben did. This isn't really that he cares about his brother. It's that he's trying to get back into the good graces of dad. So pay attention to that part because it's going to come into play later. Verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's robe, the long sleeve robe that he had on. Then they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty without water. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and when they looked up, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, basalm, and resin going down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, okay, remember, it's Judah that says this. What do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. That's good. Let's not kill him, but let's throw him into slavery, because slavery is so much better. And his brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites. Uh, If you want to underline that, that's something that comes up later as well. Who took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? So they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the robe in his blood. They sent the long sleeve robe to their father and said, we found this. Examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? His father recognized it. It is my son's robe, he said. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth around his waist, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. Now sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes it's, it's kind of easy to get to this place where we read the scriptures and we sort of like whitewash it. What do I mean by that? I mean like we put a veneer of paint over it to make it look like it's cleaner than it was. Jesus said, hey, uh, you know, uh, to the Pharisees, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You're evil and empty on the inside, but the outside looks pretty. We, we kind of do this with the Bible. We, we pretend that everything just sort of like comes clean and tidy and that everybody's kind of good. It all wraps up in our sitcom time frame. 
I mean, none of our heroes of God have any lasting flaws or vices, right? We, we, they sort of all hover above the ground with little halos that radiate after their one trial that they completed in their life. But let's look at the story without that. This is not that kind of story. There's a lot of stuff that's already happened that's pretty just gross. That's just not pretty. And you're, you're going, this is the family line of Jesus? Like, yes. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. So Joseph is 17. He's working in the family business, right? He's keeping the flocks and herd. It's not just survival. This is how they make money. This is his job. And so he's, not only is he kind of learning the ropes, he's putting in his dues. He's learning how to manage the family business. In those days, the firstborn child would receive two-thirds of all the father's inheritance. Two-thirds would go to the firstborn. They would have rule and control over um, everything but that one-third, they would run the family business. They would take care of all their siblings. They were the continuation of that family line. They would make all the decisions for the family going forward. The, the one-third would go to the second-born son, and then any other brothers born after that had to rely on the first-born son to be taken care of. That's how it worked. So you had no control, no say. You had nothing unless son number one wanted to make sure that you were taken care of. Joseph is number 11. But more than that, these kids grew up absolutely knowing the jealousy, the anger, the hurt between the wives. They knew who was more loved and who was less loved. That was not a surprise. They grew up every day in it. And despite that the maidservants had been given as wives, the children weren't really seen as their own, but as Rachel and Leah's. So even the maidservants' kids are either on Team Rachel or Team Leah. And so we have this huge tension before we even get to Joseph. And then we get to Joseph, and he's that kid. Verse 2 says he's the tattletale, right? And the problem is he's not just like, Reporting to dad, hey, here's what they're doing. He's doing it in order to buy currency and favor from his dad. He knows his tenuous position. He knows he's kid number 11. He knows he's got nothing coming to him unless his dad gives him everything. And so he's using this to buy currency as his dad's favor, but, uh, for his dad's favor. But he's already the most loved child. Verse 3 says this. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons. And he gives him this robe. Now, Again, one of the things that we have to go back to was this incident with the oldest son, Reuben. Okay? In a classic move for this family, Reuben knows that his mom wasn't the most loved. He knows he's the firstborn, but he knows that Joseph is getting all this favor and attention. And so, again, in a classic move, Reuben tries to assert his place as the one who received the blessing and the inheritance by sleeping with his father's concubine. It's essentially like a move as a hostile takeover of the family business is essentially what that is. He does it in public. Everybody knows about it. In fact, when, when the dad is giving blessings at the, end of their li- at the end of his life, and he's like, you know, here's what I have to say about each of you. He actually, he, he just roasts uh, Reuben firstly. He's like, you slept with my concubine. Like, everybody knows it. You did it. Like, basically, a, 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 you know, giant screw you is what he does. It's, it's, it's pretty bad. So Reuben fails, over this, fails in this takeover bid, and now he lives under this constant like deal with his father. His father knows what he did, and this is why he was trying to rescue Joseph. It wasn't because he cared about Joseph. It was because he was trying to make sure, see, Dad, I'm worthy of the family. I saved your beloved son. And so it makes sense why Jacob doesn't love the other kids as much as Joseph in many ways. He's thinking, man, if I only had this one wife that I really wanted and these two kids, everything would have been fine, Right? And the problem is that he doesn't love Joseph in addition to his other sons. He loves 
Joseph at the cost of his other sons, and he shows it. Now, the robe that Jacob gives to Joseph isn't just that constant reminder. I love that Joseph is wearing this when he travels to see his brothers. It's not just the constant reminder of the love and favor from the dad. It's a clear and tangible statement that Joseph is going to receive the family business from his dad. He's going to get the two-thirds inheritance. He's going to be the one that's in charge. And so, again, this is a statement. Every time he puts this on, it's a slap in the face to his brothers. Now, let's pause here for a moment because I want us to see some things about the story as we walk through it more. If you're taking notes today, this is our first observation for the day. That Jesus, I'm sorry, Joseph points us to Jesus. Joseph points us to Jesus. You'll notice that he was sold for how many pieces of silver? 20 pieces of silver. How many pieces of silver is Jesus sold for? 20 pieces of silver, 30 pieces of silver. It's the silver is the point, not the number. It's the, the point of being redeemed, redeemed. Okay? He goes from favored son, Joseph does, in line to take over the family, to being beaten and thrown into a pit of despair to die. I wish I could do the accent, the pit of despair. <clears throat> Can't do it. From there, he gets sold into slavery, and then later in his story, he's actually falsely accused of rape and imprisoned. He's sitting, languishing in prison, and if you look at his story from the outside, it just goes from, from great to worse and worse and worse and worse. So he's thrown to the pit, sold into slavery. He gets falsely convicted. He's in prison for rape. And it's not until many, many, many years later that he's justified and vindicated. But here's the thing. God reveals a greater purpose in his journey. Joseph becomes a second in command in Egypt and is able to save his family and the nation of Egypt and the nation of Israel through a great famine. And when he's brought out of his misery into his inheritance, it's a radically different guy that comes out the other side. It's a humble and God-dependent man who knows and loves God for who God is and not what God is trying to give him. So who caused this dysfunctional mess in this family? This family or God? Who caused it? The family did. Yeah, right? But God uses even the things the family created in order to redeem and rescue and renew. In fact, God doesn't, not only does he not abandon them, these children, again, they're the 12 tribes of Israel. God creates an entire line of priests from the tribe of Levi, and Jesus himself comes through that guy Judah who was like, I got an idea, let's throw him into slavery. That's not the ideal people you would want in the line of the Savior of the world. Like Joseph, Jesus was beaten, stripped of his clothing, and descended into the pit. He too cried out to the Father to save him, but had to endure suffering to bring about God's plan. Jesus was hated and humiliated by his brothers. Now, again, we're not going there in this series, but at the end of the story, Joseph is raised up to be the right hand of Pharaoh, and he saves the family of Israel. Jesus is raised up to be the Father's right hand as the Savior of the whole world. And so Joseph points us to the need for and the type of Savior that God was going to send to rescue and renew all creation through the person and work of Jesus. So how does Joseph come to this place where we hear him speak of God with confidence, with, with a sense of wonder and awe, with a sense of that God is good despite Joseph's circumstances. I'm glad that you asked me that question. I heard you. Somebody in there asked me that question. But I think for all of us, there's this temptation to look at our circumstances and and look at the promises of God, the fact that we are now beloved, adopted children in God's family, 
the fact that we have a provider and protector in our Heavenly Father and think that it means that everything should be easy. We have this sense that somehow if God is pleased with us, he'll bless us, and if he's not pleased, he'll take that blessing away. But what that does is it builds all of God's blessing, all of God's favor on our actions. And if we carry that out to its logical logical conclusion, it really just means that we are controlled. We're kind of making God dance like a puppet, if that were true. I was good today, God. You needed to shake your coin purse and let some goodness fall out. But the truth is that God's favor and grace and mercy has nothing to do with our behavior. Here, we, we see Joseph didn't do anything wrong to God, right? He wasn't the, the greatest person. God's going to remedy that. But he doesn't necessarily do anything sin. It's his brothers that commit the sin, and yet Joseph goes through this ordeal and trial, and God uses it in order to not only redeem on the big scale his family and save the nation, but also internally we see Joseph is redeemed and saved. Joseph has this radical transformation. Joseph must have struggled with this. I mean, God even told him he was the favored son. In verses 5 to 10, it said, Joseph had the dreams. He sees his family bowing down to them, and that does come true. But I imagine that since he knew these dreams came from God, that when things start going downhill with his brothers, when he gets thrown into the pit, I can imagine him saying, I can't wait till I get out of here to tell dad. This is going to solidify my place. When he's pulled out of the pit and sold into slavery, I imagine that he imagined his dad hearing about it and chasing this traitors, these traitors down and rescuing him with his army. He must have held on to hope for rescue for a very long time. Maybe when he was being sold, he was like, God's going to bring somebody that's going to buy me and then set me free and set me back to my homeland. And he ends up in Potiphar's household. He might have thought something has got to change, and yet no rescue came. Again, he must have held on to the hope of rescue for a long time until he knew that he had no chance and his family had no chance of rescue. The only hope he had was to turn to God. So what does this have to do with us? Look, the story doesn't just point us to Jesus. It certainly does that. But it also helps us to understand how God works in our lives. My friend David is a spiritual formation coach, and he says so many of us have missed what is truly sweet because they've given up too early. If you're taking notes, this is our second observation. Followers of Jesus are fruitful sufferers. Followers of Jesus are fruitful sufferers. Here's the good news. You don't even have to try for it. What do I mean by that? I mean that as we suffer, God is always doing something with it. It's never wasted. That there's fruit that develops. There's character and perseverance and strength that develops in our lives because of the things that we go through. And so it's who we already are as apprentices of Jesus. Jesus himself, who is the suffering service, tells us we must follow his example. In Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, what's that word there? If who? Anyone. I'm sorry, not some of us. Not just a select few, not those who have screwed it up really bad. But if anyone wants to follow after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's denying ourselves is laying down our rights. Laying down the things we think we're owed. And taking up our cross doesn't mean one significant challenge in our life. It means take up the nature and character of Jesus and live in that. And if we're going to take up the nature and character of Jesus, we have to take up his suffering as well. It's about recognizing God is working in and through the suffering. 
The Apostle Paul explains this in Romans 8, 17. He says, And if children, that's us, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. The Apostles Peter and James say it's for good reason. 1 Peter 4, 13. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. It means have an attitude, a character of gratitude in the midst of your suffering. James says it, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Why? It's not because he's saying you're supposed to love the trials. He's saying no and be certain that God is working in the midst of those things, and that's what we can take joy in, that God has a purpose and a plan to rescue and redeem all of us just like he did with the nation of Israel. It's just like we saw in Alexis' story today. You heard the incredible suffering. Actually, you only heard parts of it, right? As a longer story, we only had four and a half minutes today to do that. But you heard, through the incredible suffering, you heard and you actually saw on her face the joy. God is continually redeeming and renewing her and each one of us as well. We have been saved. We are being saved. And someday God will set all things right and we will be saved. Now again, the story of Joseph wraps up with Joseph being made second in command to Pharaoh. There's this beautiful story where the, the brothers come and uh, they don't know that it's him. They don't recognize him and they bow before him and like his dreams are fulfilled. It's great. But we find out that God uses circumstance to rescue the family of Israel from famine and certain death and allow them safety to grow into a massive nation. So big, in fact, that the Egyptians have to enslave them. This is where Moses comes along and ends up getting them to escape from Egypt. But it's because they grew into that mighty nation from that safety during the time of famine because of what Joseph did. Now, it's easy to look back on the story of Joseph thousands of years later and see the outcome, to see God's grand plan and see that it always had hope and purpose and that God, you know, Joseph can say it's worth it because God was going to redeem and use his suffering. It makes sense when we get to the end of the story. But Joseph, in the middle of his story, is violently beaten and stripped of that robe, that title, that promise of a future. He's thrown into a pit that he doesn't know if he's ever going to come out of. And at that moment, I imagine him, just like us, has a very difficult time seeing where God is. But I mentioned before, we know the end of the story. And so if you're taking notes today, this is our third and final observation. That when we find what we're looking for, we're all looking for something. Family, we're all looking for something. And, and in the midst of our suffering, it just makes us look even more. When we find what we're looking for, we do find what we're looking for, not in what we do, but in who Jesus is. In who Jesus is. Many of us have lived our lives in the impression that we're supposed to be getting our lives together. I don't know if some of you feel this, but you're supposed to have it figured out. Those who are a bit older maybe know what I mean by this. I don't know about you, but I had no problem turning 40 it was 30 I had a big issue with. Some of you are like, oh my God, that guy's old. I know, that's okay. But 30 was a problem. Why? Because at least I can make the excuse, well, I'm in my 20s. Right? Like, I'm not supposed to have my life figured out in my 20s. You're just in your 20s. When you hit 30, it's kind of like, oh shoot, life is supposed to be figured out. And if you don't figure it out in your 30s, then people start looking at you like, are they ever going to figure it out? We're a little concerned now, Right? Here's the deal, I'm 46 and I'm still learning every day how much I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's incredible how much I'm like, oh my gosh, I do not have life together. This is why you get married, so that she can have life together. <laughs> I just make it because she's set. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> Look, the goal of life isn't to have it all figured out and wrapped up neatly. It's not a sitcom. It doesn't wrap up like that. Life doesn't work that way. You know this. 
The goal of life is to know and love Jesus. Many of us are trying to conquer life instead of just experiencing Jesus. Life is so much more full when we experience Jesus instead of trying to get what we can out of life. It's crazy, but when you give up trying to get out of life what you want and what you need, and you humbly submit to Jesus, Jesus gives you more life than you could ever imagine. It works opposite than our intuition would tell us. And so to move further up and further in, to truly experience joy and hope and freedom amidst our trials and pain, we have to move further into a relationship with Jesus. I like to say that we rest into Jesus, not press into Jesus. Pressing is about working. Resting is just going, God, I don't, I don't know. I'm just going to follow you. You tell me what to do. Let's look back at this story of Joseph as we wrap up. Spoiler alert, Jacob and the boys never ride in to rescue Joseph. Joseph doesn't get out of his predicament through some MacGyver act. In fact, he doesn't get out of his predicament at all. He's exactly where God wants him to be. Now, that's a hard statement. God wanted him in the pit. God wanted him with the slave traders. God wanted him in Potiphar's household. God didn't cause those things to happen. But God uses those things, and it becomes Joseph that rescues his family instead. In God's economy, we are strongest when we are weakest. We're victorious when we surrender. We are successful when we're faithful and obedient and knowing him rather than trying to do things for him. God doesn't need our work. Jesus saved Joseph and his family not through their work but through God's plan and promise. So the number one thing you can do to see pain and heartache and suffering differently in your life is to stop running from it and begging Jesus to rescue you from it, to remove it from you, but to ask him to help you to draw close to him in the midst of it. Listen, I I know this is hard, right? Like I I spent my entire life, every time life gets hard and pain comes, trying to get my way out of it because it's uncomfortable. And and then the way of Jesus is to go, okay, Lord, this is uncomfortable, this hurts, but you know what, I want to find you in the midst of it. Ask God to show you how his presence isn't dependent on your actions but his love, to remind you that his great love for you and how who he is and what he has done has made you absolutely loved. Pastor and author Tim Keller says it like this, Jesus Christ did not suffer on the cross so that you would not suffer. He suffered so that when you suffer, you'll become more like him. The gospel does not promise you better life circumstances. It promises you a better life. And Jesus loves you and is pleased with you, not for what you might be, for who you already are in him. I'm not, again, I'm not pretending this is easy. Look, we don't just figure it out. It's all pretty and neat. This family, this month, my family has been suffering, right? We are going through crazy stuff again. Here we are. Uh, last year, some of you know that we had to sue the school district in order to get uh, services for my special needs son. This month, we're right back in it again. Why? Because they're trying to take away all the stuff they gave us last year. Thank God we have an incredible lawyer. We appreciate that, but we are right here trying to fight again. We just finished doing the conservatorship for him. My son is severely disabled, and so if we didn't get it done by the age of 18, the state can come in and make all the decisions for him for the rest of his life. So we had to pay. You have to do all that stuff. You fight for it. Thank God we won. We just came out of that court case, and here we are just trying to get him to the right school. At the same time, we are still struggling with all of his seizures and getting the right seizure meds for him. And so uh, if you don't know, some of us, we know this, some of us we don't, but uh, he started having seizures when we moved here to Los Angeles. It got out of control, and these seizures changed now. He's having several different types of seizures where they're locking up, he's falling over and hitting face first. He's hit his head a number of times. We've had a ton of vehicle expenses and issues that have hit us, Right? Um, it's just, it's life, it's messy, it hurts, it's not clean, and I can always find myself trying to stress and worry my way out of it or work my way out of it. Any of you guys know what I'm talking about? Two of you, okay, good. 
I always start stressing, and then God brings up a sermon where I have to preach this to myself. And I'm like, oh, yeah, God, you got this. You are in control. And so God has to continually remind me for me to understand and believe. And my choice is either to trust God in this or to stress and fight my way out of it when, honestly, I don't have any control anyway. But God has got us as a family. My family, he's got us, and you, family, he's got you too. He always has and he always will. Look, I don't have answers, but I know we're in good hands. Why? Because I see it throughout Scripture. I see it in Joseph's story. I see it in Alexis's story. I see it in my story. And he's not going to rescue me from my circumstances, but he'll always be with me in everything. And he will rescue and redeem even those horrible circumstances for what's best for my life and his kingdom. One last thing. So my family and I have been praying in this season, and this is helpful. It's just a practical thing for you. We're not praying for God to remove those things from us. We're praying that God would show us how to be grateful and thankful in the midst of those circumstances to him, to truly trust him that, God, I know that you got this. And so, you know what, instead of trying to remove me, help me to be more trusting of you. Help me to be more sure in who you are and believe that you are going to do what you're going to do. And I pray that he would do the same for each of you. Good? We're going to move into communion. Today is the first day of the month in which we take communion together as a family. I know that many of you have been taking communion inside your community groups, your personal communities already, but this is the time where we get to do it all together. Jesus gave us several commands to continue to do. Uh, when he left, he said, baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey the commands that I've taught you. And the second is to uh, continue to do communion often. Jesus gave us the bread. On, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you can proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is about remembering what Jesus has done. As you take the bread and the juice back to your seat, take a moment to just be still and quiet and listen. When you're ready, between you and the Lord, between you and your family, if your community group is here, you can take it with your community group. But when you're ready, take those elements, listen to what God wants to say to you. He will speak. And remember who he is and what he's done and who that makes us and what we do as a result. For those of you looking for a gluten-free option, I believe there is one on this table. Is that correct? Yeah, there's one on this table over to my right. Let's pray. God, thank you for all that you have done. Lord, it would be silly for us to pretend that life is easy or that things work out well. Um, it's so difficult, Father, to um, see where you're at in the midst of our pain, our suffering, our brokenness. But I pray that you would help us to have hearts of gratitude and not try and get out so quickly of the things that are hard but to know that you are growing us and shaping us in the midst of the difficult things we do. Thank you that you love us enough to not just give us everything, but to shape us through the things that you walk us through. We praise you that you know what's best for us in Jesus' name. Amen.